Wow. Rita, thank you for the gift of music this morning. Thank you, Rita. Good morning, my friends. Um, I was looking in the mirror, and though I could not see much of my blurry, mostly peach-colored head, I could tell that something was wrong. Now you're wondering what I'm talking about. My dad had taken me to Supercuts. It's a local haircutting place next to my house growing up. And uh, every time I went as a kid, he did what every parent does, tells the hairstylist how to trim my hair. Um, except this time I was in the sixth grade and I felt like a big, big boy. And so I wanted to tell the hairstylist how to trim my hair. Um, didn't bother to ask him what instructions to give, mind you. No, I just wanted to do it myself. So he let me. I sat down in the chair. Dad was in the welcome area down in the front. Uh, I said, I don't need your help. I've got it. Okay. And so the stylist said, what do you want? Now, all I could remember my dad saying was the words number two. And so I said, number two. And she said, all over? And I said, yeah, <laughs> of course. And so she took the clippers and put the number two uh, attachment onto them and then did a stripe down the middle of my head. Now, my glasses were off, mind you, and I've got terrible vision, but I could see there was a lot less brown there than there was a moment before. So I panicked. I said, I need my glasses. She gave them to me. I put them on, and I started to weep, right? <laughs> the kind of weeping when you know that, like, I've got to show up to school on Monday looking like this. I saw that inverted mohawk and just could not think about what my future would hold. My dad came over. I'm crying. The stylist is freaking out. My dad's mainly frustrated with me for like not bothering to ask him how to actually ask for a haircut. Also kind of frustrated with the stylist for starting in the middle of my head, you know. Um, got a free haircut, so that was good. Comped haircut. Went home, crying, holding my head, explaining to my mom what had happened. I had the number two all over. And my brother, who's a toddler at the time, comes waddling in, doesn't know what's happened, and tries to articulate what he's seeing with me holding my head and crying. And he says, Bubba's hair hurts. So that's kind of a silly story about hair, right? It's a story about hair. Doesn't have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Certainly nothing about justice. Today we're going to look at a story that has nothing to do with hair, and everything to do with the Holy Spirit and themes of justice and injustice and savior complex all swirling around this person named Samson. And whether or not you've ever opened a Bible before, whether or not you've ever stepped foot into a church before or watched us online, I imagine that you've heard the name Samson and there are some things that come to mind, a strong man, a Herculean hero type, right? And Samson's story is all about that wonderful hair, right? Samson and Delilah. Samson's story is not about hair, and not to spoil the punchline, but Samson's not exactly a hero either. In fact, he's kind of the worst. To explain why, uh, I got to explain the book of Judges. So his story comes to us in the book of Judges. It's an Old Testament uh, book that explains the sort of um, swirling of the drain, so to speak, of the Israelites becoming oppressed and then liberated um, by these judge figures. Judge didn't mean then what it means today for us. You're thinking of uh, people in robes in a courtroom. That's not these kinds of judges. They were almost like superheroes, right? Judges is like a really weird mix of uh, Marvel movies and Game of Thrones, right? Just smashed together. Um, it is violent. It is at times disturbing. It is fascinating. Um, and it is also where Samson's story is found. He is right towards the end of the book of Judges because every time there's a new judge, 
things get a little bit worse. The people of Israel are a little bit less liberated, a little bit more oppressed, and there's just a lot more violence in between. Because see, a judge's job was twofold. Their job was to kill Philistines and to liberate Israel. And for a while, they do okay, but each one does worse than the last. And you see how this story is going through the book of Judges until we get to Samson. Do you know where his story is going? Now, a note on the book of Judges and Samson's story before we get in. Uh, if this is the first time in a while that you've studied an Old Testament text, the violence can be a little jarring, right? And when we try to read the Old Testament with 21st century sensibilities, we can get kind of lost in the morals and ethics of the time. Now, what I want to say is this, is um, the theology of violence in God has obviously grown and changed over time. Um, the way that, that the Israelites in those days tried to understand the violent world in which they lived, the, the violent oppression with which they were burdened, um, comes across in this scripture. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a snapshot of sorts of understanding a people in a place and a time trying to make sense of what is happening to them and around them. And we know that our theology of violence and God has, has grown and shaped even throughout scripture. We can see it changing throughout the Old Testament and into the New what I hate is that sometimes we discount the Old Testament text because we say, oh, it's just kind of violent and messy and yucky and God's kind of mean and I don't like that picture of God. But if we see this more as a picture of a people and a people who are crying out and trying to make clear what justice means to them and how we get there, a people who are oppressed in a violent way, trying to make clear what it means to pursue justice and in Samson's case, what it means to fail in that pursuit. That's a story that we need to listen to, even if it at times makes us uncomfortable. Amen? Okay, so with all of that in mind, whew, that's a lot to keep in mind. Let's begin in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, I'm going to read you the abridged version of Samson's story, because honestly, it is too long for one sermon. So, I'm going to skip over the weird parts and summarize them for you as best as I can. Not all the weird parts, though. I'm going to leave some of those in, because those are just fun. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 13. The Israelites, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's shorthand for a really long time. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites. It's a cool tribe. Who are you? I'm Dan. Who are they? The Danites. Um, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having born no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having born no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come onto his head, no number two all over. For the boy shall be a Nazarite, a Nazarite to God from birth. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines." couple things that we need to notice there. First, Samson's story, birth story, is not unique. In fact, if, if you're familiar with some birth stories throughout the Bible, you hear this sort of common familiar refrain of Abraham and Sarah, Mary and Joseph. It's the story of a woman who for some reason is not supposed to have children, whether that's because she is too old or not married or barren, but the stories are all similar. An angel appears before her and says, you are going to have a child, and not just a child, but a son, which in those days in that culture meant something significant, and not just a son, but a really special son, and not just a special son, but a son who is going to change the world, right? We've heard the story before. This is how Samson's story begins. 
Now, there's a couple things that we need to note in this birth story that are unique. First, the mother is told a very specific list of things not to do. It's like a no-fun zone for Samson growing up. She's told to raise Samson as a Nazarite, which is not a, a national heritage or anything. It's like a code of conduct. The angel's basically saying, you need to raise your son with these specific promises to God. And there's a few. Don't drink strong drink. Don't eat unclean food. Don't let the razor touch his head. The point being, Samson is supposed to live this very disciplined life. But why? Why? And that's what the angel says. It says, he who shall, it is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson's life is not his own. He is born to be an, a, a vessel of justice for the people of Israel. His life is about others, at least his life is intended to be. And then in verse 24, we see this. The woman bore a son, and named him Samson. The boy grew, and the Lord blessed him. And then here's the phrase that we need to hear. The Spirit of the Lord, the Ruach, that Holy Spirit that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that Hebrew word for breath of God, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. In some names of places that I'm not going to try to pronounce because I will mispronounce them. Anyways, here's the important point there. That phrase, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, came upon him, stirred within him. We're going to hear that throughout Samson's story until we don't. So keep that line in mind. Let's continue in chapter 14, verse 5. I'm going to warn you, chapter 14 is a weird chapter. If you go back home and read this on your own, which I encourage you to do, it gets weird. Um, it tells the story of his first marriage, which did not go well. Um, did not go well. He wanted to marry this woman from the Philistine people, and he eventually did. And it's when we come to verse 5 that he's going to meet her for the first time, and it says this. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. When he came to the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion roared at him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. Did you hear that? The Ruach rushed on him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and he tore the lion apart, barehanded as one might tear apart a baby goat. It's like the author is like, yeah, he tore him apart, like really good. Like how? Like you tear apart a baby goat. What? That's the best metaphor you could come up with? Old Testament? That is weird and gross. Thank you for that. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. He was messy. Like they had to be like, what happened? Nothing. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I just, that just came to me right now, like as a parent. Like what, what did you do? Nothing. Anyways, then he went down and talked with the woman. And she pleased Samson. After a while, he returned to marry her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Now hear this clearly. He sees the carcass of the lion, dead and rotting. And there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out with his hands and went on eating it as he went. Hmm. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some of, some of that to them. And they ate it. As a parent, why would you do that? My child offers me food. I never eat what they're handing me. Never. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. Okay, guys, 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 guys. First off, let's notice what happens in the, in the lion scene, right? Did you see the order of things? He sees the lion. And then the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And then he rips the lion apart the same way he ripped apart a baby goat. Anyways, and then, the, that's the first thing we got to keep in mind. That, that order, that sequence of order. Sees the lion, spirit comes, then he does his great feat. The second thing we need to look at here is that he, when he's going past this carcass and he sees this honey, rather than being like a normal human being and saying like, that's disgusting, I'm going to keep walking. He's like, oh, free honey, no way, you know, awesome day, right? 
And if you didn't know this, eating the honey from a dead lion's carcass is um, technically, yes, unclean food. Yeah, right? I don't know if you needed me to tell you that, but that is super duper unclean. So he is not the best judge, right? He's not living as a Nazarite. He kind of gets it right, but then he really gets it wrong. This is going to be a common refrain in Samson's story. So we move forward to the end of chapter 14. And at verse 19, um, after he's been married, you know, during the wedding, there was this weird scene where he poses this riddle to the townspeople, and the townspeople can't figure it out. And so they get mad at his wife, and then his wife gets mad at him, and she says she cries on his shoulder for like days at a time, like awkward wedding reception, right? Super weird. And then he's, they, he, she tricks him into giving them the answer to the riddle. I know it's convoluted. It's the Old Testament. And then they're like, well, now you have to give us some garments because we got the riddle right. And then he has to go and kill some people in Ashkelon to take their clothes from them. You following me? No, you're not. That's okay, because it doesn't really make sense. Um, here's the important thing. God doesn't tell Samson to go to Ashkelon. In fact, he's going to Ashkelon simply to collect garments from people to pay off a riddle that he initiated and that he is now angry about, right? None of this is, is what God is asking Samson to do, but God's spirit is still with Samson. It's getting a little messy now. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord rushed on him. Hear it again? The spirit of the Lord rushed on him and he went down to Ashkelon and he killed 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the festal garments to those who had explained the riddle. Hey, quick question. Did you hear in there that Israelites were liberated in that act? Anybody hear that? I must have missed it. I thought it said that he just got some clothes off of them. Killed 30 men. 30 men. And then it says in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And then it says Samson's wife was given in the biblical sense to his companion who had been his best man. It's funny, and it's not. Samson's not a good guy. Like, if you read the Bible, Samson's not a hero. I don't know the Sunday school story that you were told as a kid. Samson's not a good guy. Samson has already so clearly lost his calling, right? He's wielding the Holy Spirit like it's his own personal weapon to gain what he needs from the people around him. And he treats people like property. It's like toxic masculinity as the Bible character, right, personified. This is a mess. This is Samson's story. So we pick up in chapter 15, and Samson's trying to get back on the horse, right, so to speak. He allows himself to be taken into captivity by the Philistines. Oh, we're getting back to a judge's purpose now, right? Kill Philistines, liberate Israelites. And so he's taken into captivity, and he's bound, and, and he's got a plan. He trusts that God's Spirit is going to show up and going to allow him to do his job as a judge. And that's exactly what happens, right? When he came to Lehi, it says, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and the Spirit of the Lord, the Ruach, rushed on him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off in his hands. And then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Yep. That makes sense in this story. Reached down and took it, and with it he killed a thousand men. And then here's the most important part. Samson says this weird poem, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have seen a thousand men. So he's finally getting things right, you think. 
He's finally doing the job of a judge, but when you look closer and you see how he understands his work, did you hear the language that he used? The jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. Really? You, Samson, mighty, mighty Samson, you did that with your big old muscly arms? That was you? I'm pretty sure Samson's the one that got himself caught and captured and bound up, and then the spirit showed up, and she gave him the power to break free from the bonds and to wield the jawbone of a donkey and to kill Philistines and hopefully liberate Israelites, right? But Samson doesn't see it that way. He's become the center of his own story. Do you see how this is taking place? He's, he's now creating this narrative where this is really about him. It's about his might and his wonders and his miracles and his work and his violence and his rage and him and him and him. He has so centered himself in this story that is a, his whole life was meant to be about others. His Life literally, physically would not exist without God's presence, and he was placed upon this earth for one sole purpose, to be about other people, and he has somehow twisted this story to be about him. In chapter 16, we find the story of Samson and Delilah, right? And that's the part we all remember. Um, so this woman that he meets in Gaza, and I don't know if he's just foolish or he wants to get caught, but she basically keeps asking him, hey, how do we kill you? How do we kill you? She's a Philistine. How do we kill you? And he's like, oh, let me just tell you all the ways that you can kill me, right? Not the smartest guy. So he finally tells her the way that he thinks will kill him, the way that he thinks his strength can be removed from him. And he tells her, if you cut my hair, then my strength will leave. Because his hair is just that awesome. It's just such good hair. If you shave my head, boom, my strength will be gone. He's so convinced that it's his hair that gives him strength, he really believes that's how his strength will be taken from him. But when you read the story of Samson and Delilah, it's not his hair. She cuts his hair, and that's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, but it says that God's spirit leaves him. It's the first time in the story that says God's spirit leaves him, not just because of his hair, but because of his disobedient and self-centered spirit throughout his entire life as a judge. And what has always given him this power? right? Has it ever been anything that he did? It's been God's presence with him. It's with this in mind that we read the end of Samson's story in chapter 16. It says this in verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, so that with this one act of revenge, I may pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. They had blinded him and they trapped him, bound him in this room with these pillars. There's a lot of Philistines in there. It says, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on each end on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he strained with all his might, and the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. That's the story of Samson. Two things here. Where's God's spirit in the end of his story? Right? Did you hear once God's spirit rushed upon him? doesn't show up. He calls for it, but we never hear it show up. Why is that? You can assume that it showed up, but why would you assume when the author's been so explicitly clear every single time the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and then something uh, 
you know, mighty happened. Instead, the author says, he strained with all his might. And I think it's because God's presence was not in this act. Because I don't see this as an act of heroism. Samson's not a hero. It's an act of rage-induced vengeance. Samson was born and raised and called to be a judge. Someone who, yes, killed Philistines, but also someone who liberated the Israelites. He did a lot of killing. We heard a lot about killing in his story. But did you ever hear any Israelites being liberated even once? Even once? No. He fails spectacularly. The story for the Israelites ends exactly the way it began with Samson, in total oppression. It's like they're not even a character in his story. They're not even there. It's a tragic tale that we need to take attention to. As someone who feels like Samson at times, I may not have his hair or his muscles, but I do share his power and his privilege, as do many of us in the room. I read the story uh, as a warning, a warning of what can happen when I trade God's call for justice on behalf of the oppressed for my own selfish, undisciplined, and ultimately meaningless purposes. I think it's a warning what happens when people of power and privilege try to center our stories on ourselves rather than centering on those beyond us. The interesting thing about Samson's story is that it is eerily similar to Jesus's. In fact, You could say that they are something of a foil or opposites of one another. Both had a mother who was not supposed to have a child. Both were raised according to a special code. Both were filled with the Holy Spirit and performed great feats during their lives. Both were martyrs, even assuming the same physical stance upon their death. But they are far from the same person. They took different paths, opposite paths, in how they chose to wield the Spirit of God in their lives and for the world. Samson chose the path of selfishness and of rage and of revenge, while Jesus chooses the path of sacrifice and of righteous anger and of justice. They both believed themselves to be saviors, but their lives and deaths could not be more different. Samson thought of himself at the expense of his people, and it led him to a meaningless death, and it kept Israel oppressed. Christ thought of his people at the expense of himself, and it led all of us to victory over death. At AUMC, we feel uniquely called to justice, to be a church that steps into the public square in the name of justice for our community and larger world. Some of y'all still like the uh, kick-in-the-pants justice unicorn that we learned about when I first arrived in July. I believe that Samson's story is a helpful caution for us as a church who feels called to this kind of work, a helpful caution against developing a savior complex in the image of Samson, that dangerous detour on the road to justice. Do you hear me, church? Are you with me, church? When we center our justice work on us, people of privilege in the room, when we center justice work on us and our our names and our faces and our voices, We know how that story ends. It does not end well. If we can decenter the story, if we can allow the story of justice to be centered on those who are actually oppressed, those who are actually marginalized, those who we have been born and called into life to serve with, can you imagine the possibilities? When June is not simply a month for us to change the watch face on our Apple Watch, so that we can show everybody how hashtag woke we are, right? 
But when we take the time during this month to learn the stories of Stonewall and why pride was first a riot, and to learn about the tragedy and pain and long march of the AIDS epidemic, and to learn about the stories of those who have fought and are still fighting for LGBTQ rights to this day, who are still under threat. When we take the time to see the faces and listen to the voices and, and understand the stories in a way that our life becomes centered on their life, can you imagine what could be possible? When the Say Their Names Memorial that's out in our front yard is not something we simply drive past or walk past, but we spend time praying through. And we read the stories that are on that website. There's a QR code in the yard. Those who are joining us online, there's a website that you can go to that we will share with you, put together by Lake Highlands Moms and More Against Racism. When we see those faces, and we see brothers and sisters and siblings, when we read their stories and we allow our lives to be centered on their lives, can you imagine what could be possible? Could the Spirit stir? Could the Spirit rush upon us once again? But as long as it's about us, I don't know that the Spirit is interested. So AUMC, may we call upon the Spirit once again. May we call on Ruach. May she breathe holy fire into our lungs and decenter our stories in a holy and powerful way to sacrifice our privilege and power on the behalf of others, to mindfully center our work on the oppressed and with the marginalized, to think first of God's people beyond these walls, beyond ourselves, beyond our stories, and in so doing, engage in meaningful life as a community of faith. May it be so. Amen.